Second Peter. We only have two more weeks to enjoy that video of the puppy, okay? So get get it. You maybe we'll put it online so you can download it if you want to use it as a screensaver or something. My name is Pastor Dale. Welcome to Seacoast. We're in the midst of a study of this great book written by the Apostle Peter, Second Peter. We're moving from chapter two to chapter three today. So open your Bibles, get it ready. There's always an outline provided that will help you if you want to take a few notes and uh, kind of increase what you take home with you through that as well. Pray with me. Father God, thanks for your holy word. Uh, we never approach this lightly. We, um, we are humbled that we have a God who loved us so much to speak to us, uh, to reveal himself to us, and today even to reveal to us uh, some future truth as we look uh, not back only, but we actually look forward in time. So we love you. We thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that we would listen well as your kids, as your children. We pray that we would uh, be responsive to it. And I thank you that uh, you always use your word. So we love you as we engage with you in it, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Sometimes when you turn on the news and you hear all the bad stuff happening around the globe, I don't know about you, but sometimes my lead question is, when is this ever going to end? Or will it? It's kind of like, is there any hope for planet Earth and for life as we know it? If someone were to ask you, um, so what's up? What's ahead in terms of the history of humanity? How would you answer that? People are asking those questions because there's a lot of fear on the planet right now. Let me just illustrate it with this clip. 13 centuries ago, Mayan priests wrote a warning that the world will end in apocalypse. They climbed to the roofs of the houses, but the houses crumbled under their feet. They tried to mount to the tops of the trees, but the trees hurled them from them. They sought refuge in the caverns, but the caverns closed before them. These keepers of primeval mysteries calculated time on a grand scale, unimaginable to other ancient cultures. But after 5,125 years of counting, their calendar stops dead on a very specific date. December 21st, 2012. Mayan year zero. Surely, it's just a story. Amazingly, those ancient Mayan legends mirror 21st century thinking. Scientists are constantly alert for new evidence of potential disaster. I have an obligation to society. That comes first. The scientific knowledge, of course, we're always building up. What the scientists are looking out for are the five cataclysmic events most likely to devastate our world. An arc storm. An asteroid impact. 
a mega quake, a mega tsunami, and a super volcano. They know that some have struck before. The brilliant flash of a thousand Hiroshima's all in one place at one time. And they believe that others will hit us in the future. Waves 60 to 100 feet high along 10,000 miles of coastline. Figuring out which disaster is coming next may answer the toughest question of all. How will the world end? Now, I don't know about you. Samuel L. Jackson is not a great theologian, but I love listening to him. <laughs> and if I could preach like that, that would be great. How will the world end? That's the question. That's the question. Second Peter has been talking about truth that we can live. It talked about the truth of what Christ did for us on the cross and what he provided for us through the gospel and the good news of Christ and how it deals with our past, how it deals with our sin, how it even sets us free in our present to be changed as we understand we are a new person, a new creation in Christ. He also talked about the uh, truth about lies, the fact that we live in a culture in which lies are common and, 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 and untruth is often being presented for us. And we need to learn how to recognize the deceptions of our culture in order to live truth. Today, he actually, in chapter 3, is going to look forward. So he's kind of looked backward to the work of Christ. He's kind of looked in the present at the, the, the warning about deception and deceptors and, and those that, that deceive. And now he's going to take a look literally into the future. We're going to deal with it for two weeks. So today and next week, we're going to take apart chapter 3. You know, one of the questions of that morning that it raises is how should we think about the future? What is the future of planet Earth? If someone asks you, for example, okay, you know, maybe they're looking at the news and, and, and they're hearing about Ebola and, and, and they're hearing about uh, these mega viruses and they're hearing about ISIS and all the tragedies going on and genocide and, and, and you know, and you hear all that stuff and, and someone says, you know something, when is it going to end? Or will we ever get it figured out so that we fix it? How would you answer that question? Could you, in a minute or two, answer the question if it was your kids or your grandkids who asked you that question? Because if not, then today is for you. We're going to look at the answers, actually, given to us by the Spirit of God through the Apostle Peter. Now, as I think about how people in the culture respond to this question... There's several different ways, and, and, I, and I read an article, I won't take credit for this, I read an interesting article that summarized it as saying the culture tends to respond like three different birds. So maybe you can remember these. Here they are. Number one, there's the pessimistic roosters who are always crying out in the barnyard, doomsday is coming, wake up, we've got to fix this now or else everything's going to be ruined on planet Earth. So there's the doomsday rooster. He writes in his article, Richard Landis writes this, Roosters crow about the imminent dawn, the apocalyptic prophets, the messianic pretenders, chronologists calculating an imminent doomsday to come. They all want to rouse the courtyard and stir the animals into action. In a way, that was kind of like the Mayan prophets, for example, or the Mayan priests that predicted. And fortunately, December 21st, one day after I had my birthday, 
on December 20th, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking, if you were, a lot of you were tracking this in the news, it was being talked about, that documentary was actually written in preparation for that day. December 21st, 2012, according to their calendars, was going to be the end of planet Earth as we know it. It came and went. We survived. We survived Y2K before that. Remember all the stuff about Y2K? I know people who sold their California property right before Y2K, cashed out in the high market, moved to the backwoods of Utah or Montana or Alaska in one case, literally, uh, you know, because they thought, hey, you know something, if, if it's going to go down, if everything goes down, I want to be living with a, you know, with a kerosene lantern in some place where I can hunt and fish and feed myself, you know. So I know people that literally did that. And they said, and by the way, if it doesn't go down, then I'll have my money out of the California housing market. I'll come back in because surely everything will crumble in the year 2000 economically and I'll buy me and myself the house at the beach I've always wanted. Those people are still living in Alaska, Montana, <laughs> Utah. Are you a pessimistic rooster? Number two. Are you an optimistic owl that says utopia is coming? I think this is very common in our culture. The author of that article writes this, The owls are night animals. They dislike the noise and the light caused by the roosters. They want to hush the roosters, insisting it's going to be all right. That the dawn is far away, that the roosters are only incorrect and even dangerous. One author wrote this concerning the predicted future. The futurist writes this in a different book. He writes, The third wave of change will bring about a totally new way of existence on planet Earth, one founded on diversified renewable energy sources. No more worry about energy. It'll be abundant and cheap, right? New production methods, an end to the nuclear family, uh, a radically changed schools and corporations. This, quote, utopian society of the future will be a practopia, a society in which both practical and preferable is both practical and preferable to the one we have today. It'll have new ethical and moral standards that will be invented to deal with the complex social issues. It will be a better balance with the biosphere, writes Alvin Toffler. You know when he wrote that? Almost 35 years ago. That was his prediction for the near future. 35 years ago, he, he says, there will be no more war, no more poverty, no more disease. If you add John Lennon saying, no more need for religion. That's the practical, perfect society where everyone just gets along. Some people say, don't worry about it. Technology, wisdom will fix it. We just need to be smarter. Third option, maybe this fits you. He calls it the pragmatic chicken, whose theme is, I'm too busy to think about this. The chickens are too busy building the nest, laying the eggs, chasing the little chicks, trying to gather enough grain just to feed the brood and to keep up with the other hens in the neighborhood. I don't know about you, but I think that's where most people are today. It's kind of like, you know, don't bother me with this stuff. I can't, I can't change it. I can't affect it. You know, I mean, it, you know, if there was an asteroid headed toward planet Earth, it's going to hit it and blow it up, uh, then I can't stop that anyway. You know, or maybe we can. Maybe just this week. Maybe Matthew McConaughey will deliver us, right? <laughs> been noticing the commercials. I think the name of the movie is Interstellar, right? Anybody seen it? Is it good? Anyway, tell me later if it is, okay. 
So, you know, you know, Matthew McConaughey, you know, if I'm going to pick a cowboy to go into space and save the planet by finding a new planet, I'd vote for Matthew McConaughey, right? <laughs> you know, because John Wayne could have done it, but he's dead and gone. You know, so, you know, the reality is, that's for the older folks. Older, young folks are thinking, who is John Wayne? But, you know, anyway, look, look him up. Okay, Google him after the service. So the question is, are you more of like an alarmist who really thinks, oh my gosh, something is out of control and it's going to happen, it's terrible, and, and you live with that stress? Or are you the stressed out rooster, are you the chilled out, relaxed owl, trusting in the wisdom of mankind to fix their problems, or are you just the pragmatic chicken running around trying to gather enough grain to feed the brood? Is there a fourth alternative? I think the article left out the best alternative. And I want to go to Scripture for that and play a little game. I call it the fearless eagle. Because in Scripture it talks a lot about eagles. Eagles, if there's a bird that's the symbol of how God wants us to live, it's like the eagle. He often says, mount up with wings like eagles in Isaiah. Now that's not in reference to this, but I could make it work. <laughs> but, you know, mount up with wings like eagles, wait upon the Lord, he'll renew your strength. In other words, the, the difference in an eagle, though, to set up my paradigm this morning, is he is fearless, he has a clear, long-range vision from heaven. You know, the unique thing about eagles compared to all the other owls, chickens, roosters, is they fly at 15, sometimes 15 to 30,000 feet. And do you realize that an eagle has such clear vision from that height that he can see way into the future? He can see way into the distance. That's okay, we'll get that. So you'll see way into the distance. In fact, an eagle, I just read this, can see a three-inch fish five miles away. A three-inch fish five miles away. His eyesight is so incredible. And I think in a way, it's, it's a symbol for today because I think if someone, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your neighbors, they're watching the news, they're reading about global warming and everything else, and they're, and they're asking, is this going to be the thing that takes out planet Earth? You know, is that going to be the problem? Is a virus the problem? Is a tsunami the problem? I don't know. You know, but how do you answer that? I think the eagle, if we get up high enough to kind of get God's viewpoint on the future, um, I think we have the answer. So listen to the word of God and we'll go there now. Okay, got truth. Here we go. How's God answer this? Beginning with verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to the word of God. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of rem remembrance or to, as a reminder. In other words, I've taught you this stuff before, but I'm writing to you again to stir up your re remembrance. He says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by, and he mentions three groups, the holy prophets, usually a reference to Old Testament prophets, the holy prophets to the commandments of the Lord and Savior, in other words, the, the teachings of Jesus, i.e., especially in the Gospels, spoken through the apostles. So in a way, verse 1 and 2 begins by saying this, look, remember, you've got truth. You bet. We have truth from God. So pay attention to God's Word. And it's interesting that he says this again. He had just taught this earlier in chapter 2, or at the end of chapter 1. So he reminds them again, remember, before we talk about what I'm about to talk about, remember, God is not silent. God, who is the only one that really knows the future, past, present, and future, is not silent. So we have, we have the Scriptures. 
It's interesting that 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament speak of future events. It's interesting that there are over 380 times in the New Testament that or verses that make reference to the return of Christ. Not just the first coming of Christ that we talk about so much because it provides the basis of our relationship with God through the gospel. But now he says that there are over 380 verses that actually talk about the second coming of Christ, not the first coming. As well as most of the Old Testament books, especially the prophetic books of the Old Testament, have references to end time. So the bottom line is just remember this. We, we have, the, we have the, the advantage that God has spoken on this issue. And I think it's just a great reminder before we delve into the, the, the guts of our study it is, is that when people ask you, so where is history headed? You know, where's the planet Earth headed? What, what's going to take us out? Or where is our hope found as we'll end on today? Start by reminding them, you know, the great news is I really believe that, that there is a God who has delivered truth to us. And if you know that, you have a starting point. Don't forget that. Now, what kind of truth did he deliver? Two major points. He delivered the truth first that we can expect doubters. We've got truth, yes, but do we also have doubters in our culture? And he says, expect doubters. Uh, You can bet on it. So don't be surprised when some people don't buy into whatever God's truth is. Listen to what he says in verse 3 to 7 about these doubters. He says, know this first of all. That in the last days, so now he's projecting forward and talking about the last days of life as we know it on planet Earth. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? In other words, where's this? Okay, we heard so much about this. 380 verses mention it in Scripture. And he says in the last days, there will be people that will mock the idea that Jesus Christ is actually going to come back and, and, and this thing is going to happen. So he says, just expect it. Don't be surprised. They're going to say, you know, where is this idea of his coming? Now, why do they say that? Verse 4 says, where is the promise of his coming? For every since the fathers fell asleep, meaning the, the fathers of the faith, okay? Talking about every since all the great heroes of the faith, all the great fathers of the faith have fallen asleep meaning died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, look, from the beginning of creation, life is just kind of rolling on, and it's going to continue to roll on. So don't bother me with this idea that Jesus is coming back. You know, where is this? I mean, he's kind of late. So that will be their attitude. Let me draw out the first two things that we learn about these these skeptics uh, or doubters. Number one, they're driven by their lusts. He says, in their lusts, they say this. They, they say it following after their lusts. Now, this is repeating a, a theme that Peter has been teaching us, that often people that question truth do it because they are seeking to justify their lifestyle. Because they realize, you know, we kind of like this lifestyle that we have right now on planet Earth. And don't, uh, don't mess with me. Secondly, they are skeptical, assuming history has no end. They assume history has no beginning, history has no end. It's always been, it always will be. And and there's this assumption, therefore don't think about this. But then the third thing he says is true of them is in verse 5. For, look at the Bible, 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed, meaning the land was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was later destroyed, being flooded with water, as God judged man's sin in the flood. Verse 7, But by his word, that is God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not, well, let's pull up there in verse 7. So what do we learn? People are lustful and they just kind of want to justify their lifestyle. So they, they don't want to listen to truth. They are skeptical. They, they, they're more comfortable with the idea that history has always been and it always will be. But he says the reason they can do that is they are forgetful. That's the third truth about this group of people. They're forgetful because they are forgetting God's past judgments and the fact that he's promised to do it again. They forget about the fact, and, and he names out several facts of human history. Now here are the, here's the quick summary of human history. Number one, God spoke creation into existence. Now, this is not designed to be a scientific verse telling you exactly how God did or didn't do this. I don't want to get into that right now, but here's what it does declare very clearly. What exists, exists because God created it, and he spoke it into existence. Now, I personally take that very literally. I think when Scripture says, God says, let there be light, that light began. And when God said, let there be land, land came forth. Let there be uh, this, let there be that. We have a God who can speak things into existence. And by the way, that's not a big deal for God. I mean, if God exists at all, he has no trouble doing that. Okay, so uh, the reality is God created the universe. I want to take just 30 seconds to make a comment about evolution. Because a lot of you right now are thinking, yeah, Dale, but good grief, are, have you been living in a cave somewhere? I mean, what about the fact of evolution? Here's my brief answer to that. I get asked this probably once a month, at least, in the plaza. I think that the fact of evolution is that, and I, I would agree, evolution has happened and is going on constantly on a micro scale. In other words, microevolution, that is, with, within species, that species change. Okay, birds' beaks change their length, or dogs you know, you can, you can breed dogs and get a different kind of dog, or you get this or you get that. So there is change happening within a species. Um, uh, change happens, and, and things evolve. What I take serious um, disagreement with is that, that, is, that, is that good science would support the concept of macroevolution on a grand scale. Meaning, is there real scientific support that would, that would say that that uh, everything that exists today, the complexity of the human body, the complexity of all that you see in our creation, started in some primordial soup and, and, you know, and got sh shocked or something and suddenly you had a, a breakout of life and that life evolved without, without intelligent design or guidance from God even, that that just evolved into complex organisms and more and more complex organisms to where you get the silly looking people that I'm looking at today, including me, the silliest of all. 
And the fact is, that is very debatable. Very debatable. That good science says that the complexity of our creation calls out, screams out for an intelligent designer. And I think that's the big lesson here is he's saying, look, God spoke creation into existence. How he did that, that's an issue of geology and science. I'm more interested in the theology of this verse than the geology of the verse. And the theology of the verse is don't be naive and think that there is no God and that you are not part of his creation. And that he is a God who in the past, um, he actually brought life and water and created things um, from when the earth was, was covered with water. And then he judged sin once before in the past with water in a, in a global event called the flood. And that's another mystery of geology is there's all kinds of evidence that land at some point was indeed underwater. And, and, and scientists to this day try to uh, figure out how in the world did that happen you know was that land always underwater or or did that water come over that land you know so you know the, the reality is he's saying this the, for the topic of our morning what's the future of planet earth he says don't forget that in the past god used creation and he destroyed things and now it is being preserved or reserved for a future judgment but this time he'll not use water he'll use fire and that is the short answer to the future of planet Earth. Now, that's kind of a depressing answer. But let me give you the depressing part, and then I'm going to give you the good part. Okay, are you ready? I want to throw some scripture up on screen because you don't have time to turn to this as quick as I'm going to give it to you. Are you ready? Here we go. So just write the references down if you're taking notes. What's, where's this world headed? Well, you go to Revelation 19 to 21 this week and read it. Revelation 19 to 29. Here's my highlights. Verse 11, and I, saw a, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on this horse was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet which he deceived. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Now notice how many times fire is mentioned. Chapter 20, verse 10, picks it back up. And then the devil who had deceived them, the devil himself was thrown into the lake of fire. Jump to verse 14, chapter 20, 14. And, the, and he says, and then death and Hades gave up their dead. And they were judged. And they were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is called the second death. Verse 15 gets more personal with it. And he says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, which is, it says, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, he, he, your name is written in this thing called the book of life. And he says, if, if your name is not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 21, verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Notice that. Not just a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Now you go back to 2 Peter. So look at your Bibles now, if you've got 2 Peter open, and look at verse 10. Here it is. It says, but in the day of the Lord, that is the return of Christ, the, the general 
totality of the time of the, of the return of Christ is often spoken of as the last days are spoken of as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord doesn't really refer to a single 24-hour day. It refers to the end times. In the final end times, you could translate it. Um, it says, And the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the heavens will pass away, same word, with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 10. So as you think about the future, there's some good news and bad news here, okay? And I mean, to say, hey, wow, planet Earth, you know, Jesus Christ is going to return, and as a part of the events surrounding the return of Christ, uh, God is going to take planet Earth as we know it, and he will destroy both heaven and earth, and, and he says it will be done with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, that sounds like bad news, but here is the good news. The good news is the very next verse if you go back to Revelation. Revelation 21.2, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So this is a heavenly city of some type, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So picture the image of a beautiful bride. You know, there's nothing more gorgeous than, than a woman on her wedding day as she's, as she's, you know, everyone's fussed over her for like hours and hours and hours. You know, the guy gets dressed in 15 minutes, right? You know, the woman, you know, she's got, she's got a whole posse around her making her perfect. You know, she's got her nails done, she's got her toes done, she's got everything that can be done, done. And, and there she comes, and she's gorgeous, and that's how he says, wow, that's kind of likely it'll be like the new Jerusalem comes down like a bride adorned for her husband. See, the church is referred to as the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ. And behold, the tabernacle of God is now among men. He will dwell with them. God now comes to live and dwell on planet Earth again, just like he did, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. There'll be no death, no crying, no mourning, no pain. Behold, I am making all things, what? New. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book entitled Heaven, if you want to read the theology behind this, and it's a great book, great read, talks about that he believes that this is the current earth, yes, destroyed by fire, but then remade by God. All things made new. All things made. Picture the Garden of Eden on a global scale. And God makes all things new. And we have a new heaven and a new earth. And in the center of it is this grand, glorious new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to earth. And God dwells on the earth with his people. Forever and ever. With no more stinking sin no more painful suffering, no more awesome, incredibly uh, destructive death. All of that is gone. And we live in spiritual bodies in a new heaven, new earth, with God and one another forever and ever if your name is written in the book of life, if you have placed your faith in Christ. See, in essence, here is what I'm, I, I get from this. Here it is. It's that the gospel of Jesus Christ... We often limit it too narrowly to the good news of the past. 
to the good news of what Christ did on the cross. The true good news that we have to talk about with people is really cool. It's this. The good news is that because of what Christ did on the cross, He will resurrect you to eternal life, but He's going to resurrect the whole crazy planet. Everything screwed up on planet Earth is because of the sin of man and the fall of man. We don't live in paradise even in Southern California. That's just a marketing tool, so we pay more to live here. <laughs> this is not paradise. Now, I personally think it's still the best place on a fallen planet you can find. But paradise is coming. It's not present. So don't buy the lie. Buy a house, don't buy the lie. See, God is going to, through what Christ did on the cross, He brings life. To you and me, He gives us life. He's going to bring the planet to life. He's going to heal the planet by destroying it completely and remaking it all things new. Read Alcorn's book. It will blow your mind. It'll totally change the way you think about what your eternal state in heaven is like. So the question is this. Do we have good news to offer people that look at how how crappy things are on planet earth right now do we have hope and that's the third part of this passage do we have truth about the future got truth yes right got truth say yes yes got truth yes got skeptics or doubters answer yes, yes. expect it do we have hope answer is you bet because christ is alive and he's coming back to fix everything verse 8 do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to faith in Christ. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. In other words, Christ, the return of Christ, which puts into, into motion these final events of human history, will happen all of a sudden like a thief who comes into your house at night while you're sleeping and you have no advance warning. It's just boom, it happens. So what do we learn? Three great truths that I think we can apply in our lives right out of these verses. I love God's Word. It's smarter than me. Always. Here we go. Here we go. Here's how I kind of rephrase it. He says, look, do you have hope? Yes. And here's why. Because even though, even though Jesus seems to like be missing, you know, what happened to the second coming of Christ that we're, we're kind of taught in Scripture we should live as if it could happen any moment and that's been like thousands of years. Okay, here's the answer to that. Number one, He's not slow. Jesus is not slow. He's on God time. And he defines God time in this way. He says, with God, like, you know, like a day is like a thousand years. And by the way, a thousand years might as well be a day. So relax. God has his own time schedule and his own approach to time since he is eternal. So what we think is like, wow, it's been so long since I've been born. Guess what? Boom, that's how long you've been born. Can you do that? One, two, three, do it together. One, two, three. Boom, there's your whole life. 
from God's perspective, except it's a lot shorter than that. So I hate to bust your bubble that you've got this long life. Life is eternal, and that's why it matters so much that we have our faith in Christ. God's on God time, not our time. Number two, Jesus is not forgotten. He didn't lose track of, oops, I was supposed to come again. He's waiting with compassion. He's waiting with compassion. He says the reason he hasn't come back is because he's not slow about his promise. He's going to keep his promise to come back. But he's being patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Wow, what a glimpse into the heart of God. That God's heart is Jesus could easily be, in some ways, happy to just come back and put an end to all the sin and suffering and pain. People say, well, why doesn't God stop all the pain? It's because he loves people too much to do that. The only way to stop all the pain is to put an end to life on human, uh, is to put an end to human life now. Or take away the freedom of people to love or not to love. You see, suffering especially human-on-human suffering, which is the vast majority, is rooted in the fact that God created us, human beings, in His image as spiritual beings to love Him and to love one another. That's part of being made in the image of God. You agree with that? You got that? Here's the deal. If God made you perfect and made everyone else behave perfectly, Would love exist? My answer is no. Because for authentic love to exist, you must have the freedom not to love. If God just kind of makes you love Dale, because, you know, I I can kind of vote for that, but after a while I'd begin to realize, you know, does anybody like really love me? Or are you just doing this because God's programmed you and that's all you can do? See, better... The very nature of being made in the image of God requires moral freedom. To love requires the freedom not to love. And in that is the pain. So God hates the pain. Jesus hates the pain. But he's patient toward us, not wanting any to perish. He's wanting more people to come to faith, to come to repentance. He's wanting more people to experience eternal life, not eternal death. He's wanting more people coming into the kingdom of God and anticipating this incredible new heaven, new earth, forever, forever. He's waiting and he wants us to care about that too. One way to say it is Christ has not abandoned his plan, he is fulfilling his plan. Last but not least, he is going to come like a thief in the night. Boom, it's going to happen. I don't have time to go into the details of this, so here's what I gave you for your own fun on the bottom of your outline in a shaded box you will see matthew chapter 24 probably the greatest single chapter in which jesus talks about his own return we don't have time to study it today but i wanted to give it to you in case you want to be reading it i will come back to this next week in conjunction with teaching the final section of second peter three so so how do we respond to future truth How do we respond to what we know about what God will do in the future? I think it's best summarized, since you're in 2 Peter, with a verse that we will study next week. 
It's verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, in other words, since you're anticipating these things of a new heaven and a new earth, and be diligent to be found in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. In that one phrase, he gives me my response to this. Number one, hey, in light of these things, when Jesus suddenly appears, boom, you want to be found how? Number one, in peace. You know that you have nothing to fear when he comes back. That You're at peace with God. You're at peace with other people. You're not holding grudges. You're, in other words, be at peace with God because you know your faith is solid in Christ. That's the first thing. Be found in peace. No fear. So if you've never trusted Christ this morning, you ought to be scared to death that this might happen tomorrow because you're not at peace with God. So make sure that today you pray with me today and you make sure you're at peace with God through Christ. That's the bottom line. But he says, and if you've already done that, be spotless and blameless. In other words, be living in a way that where you're letting Christ change you and make you the person God wants you to be so that when he comes and boom, all of a sudden uh, your life is over and you go to be with him, we'll talk about this next week, you're not embarrassed. You're not embarrassed by what Jesus finds you doing and how you're living when he comes back. Because there's not going to be a warning. It's not going to be a, okay, two-minute warning like I give you for worship, okay, when you're out in the plaza. We're not, Jesus is not doing the two-minute warning. He's not doing the two-minute warning. Be spotless and blameless. And number one, with regard to the patience of the Lord, consider it as salvation. Consider it as your opportunity to not just experience the salvation of Christ, but to, to help others experience that as well. Oh my gosh. If there's ever a truth in Scripture that should motivate us as a church to give, to serve, and to share the great news of the gospel. It's this. And guess what? Next time someone asks you, wow, the news is so depressing, I don't even watch it, then why don't you take that as an opportunity to say, you know, it used to be that way for me, but I realized that there's actually a really cool future for planet Earth. Now, you say that, what are they going to say? What do you mean by that? Say, well, if you'd like to send over coffee... I'll explain it to you. And tell them, not just about the destruction to come, tell them about the new heaven and the new earth and the great gospel that gives them the promise that that is their home. So they can have peace, even when the news stinks. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, thank you for the gospel of Christ. Thank you for the incredible promises. And Father, as the band comes to lead us in a final song of celebration and commitment, I want to pause for just a minute and, uh, and say if I have any friends here today who, have not, who are not at peace, should Jesus come to not... If, if Jesus had come today, um, that they need that peace with God, that comes from the forgiveness offered by Christ. I would invite them to pray with me and say, Lord Jesus, I need you.
I need your forgiveness. I thank you for what you did on the cross. I thank you that you welcome me just the way I am. And you offer me eternal life. I place my faith in you as my Savior today. And I, I claim that peace that I now have with you. And I want now to begin to be changed and transformed. That you could use me to help share this incredible, encouraging news to a planet that can be so depressed and depressing. Thank you that we have hope and we have a future that is grand in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And Father, even as we give now, uh, we give because we want this gospel, this good news to kind of blast out and go around the world. We give as an act of worship to say thank you for all that you've given us. We worship in our giving in Christ's name. Amen.